for instance, for supper. I'm so glad that you've been able to join me today. Um, please bear with me. <laughs> we are a little bit nervous because it is our first episode out. Um, but we're just so happy to be here, honestly. A little nerve-wracking again, but happy to be here nonetheless. Um, so this podcast, again, since for supper, will be hosted by myself and my sister Nani. Nani's going to be here with me every Monday as well, but um, today I'm all on my own. We decided to do it like this because we wanted to make sure to get this episode out on time. But nonetheless, we'll have fun and she'll catch up with us next week. Besides our Monday episodes, we'll also be having a Born to Kill segment every Wednesday. And then depending on the day that that Wednesday falls on, whoever was born on that specific day, we're going to go ahead and do a mini dive on their crimes, who they are, their victims, and hopefully jail sentences or prison sentences that they might have received. So I'm really looking forward to those because I feel like it's pretty fun. I already recorded the one for this week on Wednesday, so I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. It should be published, I think, in the morning or maybe the afternoon. I'm not sure. I know that I auto-published it, so it'll be there on Wednesday. I promise. Before we begin with today's case, I do want to put out a disclaimer or trigger warning. This case will touch subjects such as abduction, murder, sexual assault, and great bodily harm. So if any of these subjects are difficult for you to hear, please go ahead and pause and turn off the episode or go ahead and skip on to the next one. I promise not all episodes are going to be as gruesome or as tough to hear as these. But if this is one of those that you can't really listen to, just go ahead and turn it off and wait for the next one. I promise the next one won't be as, as bad. So this case takes place pretty close to home since we were born and raised in Miami. But before we get started on the details of the case, I thought it would be fun to add some interesting facts about us South Floridians. Uh, for one, Florida is actually pretty famous for car insurance fraud, which honestly is no surprise to me whatsoever. So besides that, we also are known for drinks like Miami Vice, duh, cafecito or Cuban coffee, cafe con leche, which is just Cuban coffee with milk. At least my, when like growing up, we made it, rather than using cow's milk, we used evaporated milk, which is so much better. If you haven't tried it, I suggest you give it a shot. 110% recommend. I mean, it's still cow's milk, but it just tastes so much better. One thing I didn't know was that the first Burger King opened in Miami back in 1954. Um, 70% of Miami's population is Hispanic, which I would expect. Uh, we're also known in some states. I don't know if it's everywhere that everyone has this assumption or it's just like in specific states. But everyone thinks that we kind of all like fight alligators over here or crocodiles. But honestly, I think we mostly see that. Over in the Everglades, not really Miami. I feel like in Miami, we have more iguanas than anything else. Especially, like, when the iguanas freeze over, like, in our quote-unquote winters, when it just hits, like, the 70s, sometimes the 60s. Those iguanas freeze up, and if they hit you on the head and they're stone, like, rock hard like that, forget it. Concussion, here we go. Another thing that I think we're really well known for is the fact that nobody down here uses their turn signals. Nobody. 
like you practically have to fight your way into another lane. It's ridiculous, but you know, guilty as charged. It it is what it is. It comes with the territory, I guess. All right, so let's go ahead and get started on this case. So a little bit of background on how the victim of this case ended up in the states. We're gonna go ahead and go back to the 1990s. So we start off in Medellin, Colombia. In 1990, uh, Margarita Osorio decides to give up her job as an accountant to move over to Miami, Florida with her daughter, Ana Maria Angel. So the reason for their move is to flee the violence of Colombia's election, which ended up bringing on a ton of assassinations to public officials and candidates of the upcoming presidential election. To give a little bit of insight on the craziness of the violence, we'll go ahead and start with the assassination of Jaime Pardo Leal in October of 1987. In March of 1989, there was an attack in El Dorado Airport which led to the death of the leader of the Patriotic Union, Jose Antequera, and injured the future president, Ernesto Samper. The Liberal Party's nominee, Luis Carlos Galán, which had become the favorite nominee of the election, was actually shot on stage in the middle of a rally in August 1989. The candidate that followed Galang almost met the same fate. So Cesar Gaviria on Avianca Flight 203 was bombed in an attempt to kill Cesar. But luckily he did survive and unfortunately 107 passengers and crew lost their lives that day. Then in March of 1990, the candidate of the Patriotic Union, Bernardo Jaramillo Osa, was also assassinated and this seemed to be the party's last straw, which ultimately made them pull out of the election. And the last assassination that occurred that I could find, it was of Carlos Pizarro Leon Gomez in April 1990, who was a candidate of the M19 Democratic Alliance. So fast forward about a decade after that, and we're in Miami, Florida. Ana Maria Angel was a senior over in South Miami High School, which I think it's on Southwest 53rd Street, if I remember correctly. I didn't go to that school, but I've heard of it and passed by it. But nonetheless, Ana was an honor student and was actually six weeks shy from her graduation. Ana was also dating someone at the time, her boyfriend, Nelson Portobanco, who attended the same high school. Ana was actually looking forward to graduation, especially since she had plans of joining the U.S. Air Force. And then on April 27, 2002, Ana was getting ready for a date with her boyfriend, Nelson, celebrating their four-month anniversary. I remember doing that with my like high school boyfriends. Oh, happy second month anniversary, and it's literally just been two months that we've been together. It's cute though. Um, but later on when testifying, Anna's mom actually mentioned how she had helped Anna with her makeup and getting her clothes ready for her day, helping her choose what to wear, you know, typical fun girl mom stuff. Uh, but once she was ready, her and her mom exchanged blessings and her mom told her to enjoy her night. And unfortunately, doing so, she didn't know that this would be the last time that she would actually see her daughter alive. So for their date, Nelson picked up Anna around 8 p.m. that night, and they went over to Bayside to have dinner. So anyone who hasn't been to Miami or isn't a local that isn't familiar, 
Bayside Marketplace is like a shopping center downtown around South Beach. So at Bayside, they have restaurants, bars, shops. It's by the water. So there's a bunch of boats that host parties and whatnot. I'm not sure if they still do that now, the whole boating, hosting party stuff, because I haven't been there in a while. But it's fun and there's lots to do. There's a good amount of walking space. So there's, think of it as a big outdoor mall right in front of the water. It's, it's a cute, fun place to go for a date, definitely. After dinner, they decided that they wanted to go on a stroll on the beach. Super romantic. Uh, Nelson drives them over to South Beach and parks over at Penrod's, which was a restaurant that is no longer open today, but back in the day was a pretty fun hotspot. It was a cute, you know, little anniversary dinner date type of thing. So they walk on the beach, talk for a little while, have a good time, just enjoying each other's company. So Anna and Nelson decided that it's time to head back home. So they head over to the car over in the parking lot. Now, they're thinking that their lovely romantic night was coming to a blissful end. And unfortunately, they were not aware that their night was about to take a turn for the worse. While they're walking off the beach towards the parking lot, they can see a white F-150 Ford pickup truck with two men standing by the passenger side. While Anna's trying to put her shoes back on, a third man, who calls himself Diablo, comes out from behind the bushes, demanding at gunpoint that both Anna and Nelson get in the F-150. Of course, being scared and being held at gunpoint, they both end up getting into the truck. When they enter the truck, they notice that there's a total of five men. Now, these men are Victor Caraballo, his brother Hector Caraballo, Joel Lebron, who's the one that calls himself Diablo, that held, that held Anna and Nelson at gunpoint, Joel's 16-year-old nephew named Caesar, who is the driver, and then Jesus Ramon, who they refer to as Tito, but throughout the story, we just refer to him as Jesus or, or Jesus. Now... The men start to take their things like wallets, phone, jewelry, and after being held for about 10 to 15 minutes, the truck starts to move and begins to head north. Anna and Nelson are told to put their heads down, bend over at the waist, and put their chests on their knees. So after driving about 15 minutes, the truck comes to a stop at a gas station, and the men start to demand Anna's pin for her ATM card. For some reason, they weren't able to withdraw any money, so they decide to drive another about 10 to 15 minutes to another gas station, and that's when Victor and Caesar are able to take out $160 from Anna's ATM card. So after that, they continue driving, and eventually there is a police car right behind them. They start to get a little bit panicky and nervous for a little while, but eventually the police cruiser turns into a different direction, and that's when Anna and Nelson's small sliver of hope just becomes a prayer that hasn't been answered just yet. So now it's about 12.18 in the morning, and the reason that we know this is because one of the men had actually used Nelson's phone to make a phone call to his brother over in Orlando. Now keep in mind, this ends up coming into play later on in the story. So the men in the truck start demanding, before I continue, this is when it starts to get a little bit 
hard to listen to. So again, if you can't really stomach listening to sexual assault or battery or any of that, I suggest you go ahead and skip over the next couple of minutes or maybe just skip the rest of the episode entirely. But again, trigger warning for the crazy stuff that's about to happen in this case. So the men in the truck start demanding that Nelson kiss Anna, which he refuses to do. He gets punched in the head over it. Then they try to force him to touch Anna inappropriately, and again he refuses. But with that refusal, they demand Anna to take off her underwear and hand it over to one of the men in the truck. Once she does this, they then push Nelson onto the floorboard of the truck, pull his shirt over his head, and then the three men in the back begin to sexually assault Anna, taking turns while she begs them to stop. And this is coming from the testimony of Nelson, who states, and I quote, They ordered us to keep our heads down and eyes closed, and then they demanded that we give them all of our belongings. And one of the sources mentions how the five men wanted a, quote, sex show. And while in the truck, Nelson could hear the men sexually assaulting Anna. He says, she was crying, asking them to stop. In one of the sources, it states that she was telling them that she had been raped by her stepfather and kept begging them to just stop. She pleaded with them to not penetrate her in the anus, but Joel, or aka Diablo, he did anyway. Jesus Ramon penetrated Anna vaginally, and then Hector Caraballo did as well. Victor moved to the back seat, switching places with one of the men to, quote, get his turn. This is so, This is. I think this is one of the most infuriating parts of this case. I, I just, uh... So Anna continues to plead with them to stop, but they continue to take turns with Anna for about 15 minutes to about half an hour over in the back of the truck while Caesar drove. And while he listened to his girlfriend get assaulted, Nelson was beaten and stabbed continuously as they were driving north. Nelson was stabbed multiple times in the face, in his back, his arms, and even to the back of the head. This altercation went on for about 20 minutes. After those excruciating 20 minutes, the truck pulls over to the side of the road over on I-95 at Sample Road in Broward County. Once they pulled over, Victor and Joel pull Nelson out into an embankment, forcing him to kneel next to a wall. He kneels, and then they tell him to turn around and look at them. But as soon as he did, they stabbed him in the face, neck, and back, and kicked him. Now at this point, Nelson thought that the only way to end the beating was to play dead, and that's exactly what he did. Eventually, they stop beating him and leave him for dead. And once Nelson hears that they're gone, he gets up and heads for the road, because remember, they beat him in an embankment, and if there's something in an embankment on the side of the road, you're driving by on the highway, you'll never really notice it. So he had gotten up so quickly that he does end up getting a glimpse of that white Ford F-150 driving away. And after a little while, Nelson was able to flag someone down on the road, explaining what happened to him and his girlfriend, and able to call 911. So mind you, this is what happens to Nelson, and they still have Anna in the truck. So after Victor and Joel returned to the truck, Anna continued to cry and was begging them not to kill her and asked to be let go anywhere. Of course, they ignored her pleas and they continued to drive north to exit 38 over in Palm Beach County. 
Right off the exit, they end up pulling over, and Anna was pulled out of the truck on the side of the road and hit in the face. Anna keeps screaming and begging not to be killed. They have her on her knees, her hands clasped together with her fingers interlaced, her head tilted down. While on her knees, Joel LeBron fired his gun, not once, but twice, and the gun misfired both times. Now you would think as a rational person, if this gun misfires twice while I'm trying to shoot somebody, maybe this is a bit of a wake-up call, like what the fuck am I doing? Maybe I shouldn't even be doing what I'm doing. Maybe I should try to right the situation. You know what I mean? Like, he had a chance from the very beginning, even before leaving Nelson stranded on the side of the road, or or even now in front of Anna, he had a chance to stop what he was doing and just avoid taking somebody's life. But again, in these kind of situations, that doesn't really happen. So unfortunately, Joel tries a third time, and this time he shot Anna in the back of the head at point-blank range. This causes Anna to fall over behind a clump of bushes near the retaining wall that is invisible from the roadway, and Anna was left there on the side of the road. After killing Anna, everybody in the truck continues to head north, hoping to arrive at Orlando, which they eventually do, arriving around 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, we're all kind of wondering, like, what the hell's going on with Nelson? Like, he was just dumped on the side of the road. Somebody, he was able to flag somebody down. So once he flagged that motorist down, the motorist ends up calling 911. And Nelson was taken by ambulance to a hospital where there were staples used to close up his stab wounds. One of them, which was actually less than a centimeter from his artery. He was swollen, cut up all over his neck, his body. He was nervous, crying, understandably. Nelson ends up telling police about the stolen property, describes the truck, and he also mentions a phone call that was made earlier on his cell phone that night. So police use that cell phone call to trace wherever it came from or wherever it was made to. And they learned that it was used to dial Hector to an apartment over in Orlando. And they actually tried to use Anna's ATM card again over at 7-Eleven near the apartment at around 6.30 in the morning. Around 1pm, police actually head over to what they believed was Hector's apartment, which was actually leased over to a Luis Diaz Ramos. And there the detective on the case spoke to Manuel Caraballo, who gave him Mena's telephone number another one of the detectives decides to speak with the leasing office to try to get a little bit more information turns out that the leasing office didn't know who victor was but they did recognize that caraballo last name and he had actually been evicted and had moved out of the apartment the property manager confirmed that he didn't live in the apartment since he relinquished the keys and property maintenance had changed the locks so they had considered it abandoned but, here's the but, police actually decide to check the apartment anyway. They didn't want to announce themselves as the police, though, since they were still looking for Anna, and they didn't want to put her in harm's way in case she was in there, or if they tried to hurt her, 
because again, the police is outside. Nobody knows that Anna was killed and left on the side of the road. No one knows but these five men. So they start banging on the door and get no response. So they have Steve, the property maintenance guy, come up and open the door with his keys. But surprisingly enough, the keys actually don't work. It turns out that the lock on the door was actually completely different than the lock that was originally put there to replace the lock when he had moved out or had been evicted. So they tried drilling through the door and that doesn't work either because it turns out on the inside the door is actually barricaded so police had to kick the door down and it took a good like 10 powerful kicks to get the door wide enough to let anybody inside. Upon entering at 2.25 p.m., the police had found that the apartment was barren except for the items that had been used to block the door, like a tire and a tire iron, and Victor was actually laying on the bedroom floor on a mat. He said that he didn't hear them knocking because he was asleep, but there was a smoldering cigarette butt next to him, so okay, liar. Whatever, so police thought Victor was trespassing, or that's what they got him on, and he understood that he was being evicted from the apartment. So he was initially handcuffed, and that's how they were able to bring him in on that trespassing charge. They actually come to realize that he's more comfortable speaking in Spanish, so Agent Hidalgo arrives to speak with Victor in Spanish. They take his hands closed off, and he waived his Miranda rights. So I actually have the, like, Florida Supreme Court, um, I'm not even sure what to call it, like, the transcripts of what Victor had said to the detective, and I actually want to read them to you guys word for word, so that way you understand what was said when Victor was speaking to Detective Hidalgo, so bear with me, here we go. For the interrogation, or the questioning, uh, Victor was actually given bathroom breaks, food, and he was handed his Bible. Alright, so here we go. Uh, Victor denied knowing where Hector was and told Agent Hidalgo that he last saw his brother the day before. The defendant, Victor, talked about his trip to Miami, stating that LeBron, Ramon, and Mena came to Hector's apartment the previous day, told Hector and he that they were going to Miami to a party, and asked whether they wanted to go as Mana had rented a truck from the budget rental car. Once in Miami, they went to the beach, parked near a club, and tried to enter the club without paying. As they were doing this, that's when they came upon Nelson and Anna, and Victor stated that LeBron grabbed Nelson, Ramon and Mena grabbed Anna, and they put them in the truck. Once inside the truck, LeBron and Ramon held knives to the backs of Nelson and Anna and threatened them. The defendant, Victor, stated that LeBron suggested that they beat up Nelson and leave him in Miami. The defendant explained that LeBron and Ramon got out of the truck with Nelson and Anna screamed not to hurt him or kill him. When LeBron and Ramon came back to the truck, they said that they beat up Nelson. The defendant stated a couple of times that Anna continued to beg and cry, asking them to please let her out anywhere. Sorry, this is getting a little tough to, to read. 
The defendant never included either his brother Hector or himself in the activities of the evening and never discussed any sexual activity. Finally, the defendant claimed that Anna was still alive and that they arrived back in Orlando at around 1 a.m. that morning. Which is weird because some sources say that they got to Orlando at around 6 and they say that because they tried to use Anna's card at 6.30 at an ATM, but I digress. The defendant then discussed the items taken from Nelson and Anna, identifying where each was located within the apartment, but claiming that LeBron and Ramon had put the items in the apartment. Anna's driver's license and ATM card were on a shelf in the kitchen, her purse was in the vanity cabinet, her cell phone was found in the master bedroom of the apartment, inside a pair of pants on top of a duffel bag, and Anna's and Nelson's wallets were found in Ziploc bags in the toilet tank. What the fuck? The defendant's clothing worn the night of Anna and Nelson's kidnapping was also recovered from the apartment. Anna's shoes were found in a dumpster at the apartment complex. So all that's from court records of what uh, Victor told the, uh, what is it, um, Agent Hidalgo. So um, believing that Anna was still alive, Agent Hidalgo actually asked Victor um, if he thought that Joel Lebron, Jesus Ramon, or Cesar Mena were capable of killing Anna. This is when Victor responded affirmatively, began crying, and asked for his Bible. A little while after this, Victor was actually taken to the FDLE, or the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, uh, over in Orlando, and was actually questioned by Detective Larry Marrero, along with Agent Hidalgo, who recorded the interview this time because the first go-around, it wasn't recorded, which I don't understand why it wasn't. But Victor gets his Miranda rights read again. He waives those rights again. And he alters a few things from his previous statements, and he adds a little bit more detail. He states that he had not met Joel or Jesus prior to the day before. All the men began drinking beer in Orlando. They drove straight to Miami. They tried to sneak into the club around 12. They stopped by a security guard. He says that uh, he was outside the truck arguing with LeBron and Ramon over what the best way to get into the club was, and that's when Nelson and Anna walked by. He watched as LeBron and Ramon forced Nelson and Anna in the truck against their will, but later states that he was far away from the truck and that everyone was outside the truck. He sat up from the passenger seat and maintained that he didn't sit in the back and he identified their locations in the truck. He states that Caesar was driving, he himself was in the front passenger seat, Joel behind the driver in the back seat, then it was Anna, Jesus, Hector behind the passenger seat, and Nelson on the floor. He mentions how they stole the victim's belongings and assaulted Anna and beat Nelson, and after they got rid of Nelson, Victor started telling the others that he wanted to head back home, and he stated that Anna asked him to let her go, but later claimed that Anna didn't say anything the whole time, which I don't, I don't know about that. And why are you switching up right now? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> so he then went on to explain that Joel took all the things that they stole, including Anna's shoes, and put them in the dumpster at the apartment complex. He ends up altering his prior statement again, explaining that since he liked to drink, he decided to keep the cell phone to try and sell it that it was he who had hid everything in the apartment. He later stated that he did not get anything distributed to him and discussed how he was living in the apartment and stated that he was already supposed to move out of the apartment, but he hadn't done so and that he received the eviction letter on the 17th. There was a lot of like back and forth and babbling on and on on 
on his side of things. But eventually, Victor states that he thought Joel, or Diablo, was capable of killing Anna, but he did not know whether Joel had killed Anna or not. After that, Caesar was later brought into questioning, and if I end up going through every single like recorded or transcribed uh, interview, we're going to be here forever. But um, after Caesar was brought in, two days after that, on April 29th, police actually learned the location of Anna's body from Caesar at around 3.15 in the morning. Anna was found on the northbound side of I-95 near exit 38 over in Palm Beach County. Her fingers still laced together and her face bruised. I honestly cannot imagine the horror her mother went through those two days that police were trying to figure out where she was. Like, I lose my dog for two seconds at the park and I'm freaking out so I can imagine a mom with her daughter. Oh my god, this breaks my heart. So this this happens around 2002, and the trial for Anna's murder doesn't start until 2012, like a, a good decade after everything takes place. So we're just going to kind of go quickly over their sentences, because honestly, they don't even deserve to be spoken about anymore, because fuck them. And I wholeheartedly will say it again, fuck these people. Because, like, there were, there were five of you. How do you not, like, think about it and try to convince one another, like, this is not what the fuck we're supposed to be doing. Like, who... I don't understand. Like, you just literally ripped a, a child out of a mother's arms. Like, who does this type of shit? I'm upset. Honestly, like, this just... And the fact that it happens so close to home, it makes me open my eyes. Like, this type of shit happens anywhere. Anywhere. So, Victor Caraballo was convicted of seven counts, which included kidnapping, rape, and murder of Anna, or the murder of Anna, and was also convicted of attempted first-degree murder, robbery, and kidnapping of Nelson, and he was sentenced to death. He actually ends up submitting an appeal, and the Florida Supreme Court vacated the death sentence and sent the case back to trial for a new penalty phase. I was looking for what ended up happening, but I couldn't really find anything. Um... But then Caesar Mena was convicted of six of seven counts, and he was sentenced to life in prison. The jury found him guilty on one count of murder, two counts of armed kidnapping, two counts of robbery, and one count of attempted murder. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison and five consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. Then we go on to Jesus Ramon, who was convicted of all seven counts, including first-degree murder, Attempted first-degree murder with a deadly weapon, kidnapping with a weapon, armed robbery with a firearm, and armed sexual battery, and he was sentenced to life in prison. He wasn't eligible for the death penalty, though, because he was still a minor when this happened. I think he was, like, 17. Uh, And then Hector Caraballo, he entered his plea of guilty and agreed to a 50-year prison term. Originally charged with first-degree murder, Caraballo ends up pleading guilty to second degree and some other felonies which was about the same as Jesus's seven counts and then we move on to Joel Lebron aka the Diablo which is what he refers himself as fuck this guy he ended up having a mistrial actually due to the testimony of Miami Beach detective Larry Marrero 
where he committed a gaffe, which I didn't even know what the hell that was, but it's actually um, what's known as an unintentional remark, and he had this on the stand, which he ended up forcing Judge William Thomas to dismiss the jury. A new jury was then selected, and then, unsurprisingly, they end up convicting him for abduction, robbery, gang raping, and murder, recommending he receive the death penalty. The death penalty was then thrown out, and Joel was given six life sentences to be served consecutively for the counts, including um, the robbery and kidnapping of both Anna and Nelson, the attempted first-degree murder of Nelson, and the armed sexual battery of Anna. And honestly, they all deserve to rot in hell, if you ask me. My heart goes out to Anna her mom, her family and friends, to Nelson. I cannot imagine how hard and traumatizing this must have been for them. Like, you can imagine it, but you can't really understand it. It's just so, so heartbreaking, honestly. Like, I can only imagine... And, and, not, and not just everything that happened after the fact, like, while it was happening. Like, can you imagine the stress and, and the amount of fear someone's family goes through something like this and, and the victims themselves like this is just this is fucking nuts so yeah my heart does go out to these families and the, you know and the victims themselves like it's just so so hard oh i want to cry Whew. and well that's the case that's known as the South Beach murder and kidnapping. That was a tough one, especially for a first episode. That was crazy. Like I don't, I don't understand how. I mean, the psychology behind it must be nuts. I can only imagine like what kind of things, especially Joel. What kind of sick and twisted shit went on in his childhood that ended up causing this but again there's no excuse for what he did like you're a shit person like the, the, that's pretty much it you know what I mean like the, this is crazy hey I'll never understand how people are so heartless and again you know I know that there's psychology behind it but again like sometimes it's just, it just doesn't fit in my head how someone can do this to someone and, and their family it's just crazy but nonetheless, as crazy as this case was and as heartbreaking as it was, I want to thank you guys for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. And I'm so excited to like kind of like keep this going, you know. So feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at Sins for Supper. DM us, give us your opinions, tell us where we can improve. Like we are newbies at this. So whatever input we can get, we will take it honestly we will take it um but yeah i'm just so happy that you guys are here and i'm so happy to be doing this finally because it's been in the works for a little while and i just wanted to enter the world of true crime and kind of share a lot of stories that aren't really well known because i know there's a lot of podcasts that do like really well-known um cases but i kind of want to delve a little deeper in those that i feel kind of get ignored you know but nonetheless, I'm so happy that we did this. So exciting. 
uh, go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Sins for Supper. Tell us what you think. Tell us how you feel. We want to know. We truly, truly do want to know. But um, we'll go ahead and have images on our Instagram page. And we'll try to do that with every case. Kind of get give you a little bit of a feel. And more in touch with the victim and their families. And put their face out there rather than put the face of those who committed these crimes against them. But thanks for joining us. I'm so, again, so excited to be here. So nervous. But I'm happy we did it. So go ahead, have some sins for supper, and I'll see you next week. Bye. The sources for this case include MiamiBeach411.com, FloridaSupremeCourt.org, APNews.com, Wikipedia.com, SunSentinel, Local10.com, and PublicFLCourts.org.